from the 1730s, a movement of the Spirit of God swept across America. And many, many people heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ and were converted. Many people repented of their sins, believed in Christ. And the, the, the amazing thing about the Great Awakening in the 1730s, is that it wasn't technique, it wasn't innovation, rather it was the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of people all up and down America, the colonial America at that time, because it just, because things just, just happened. In, in one place, another place, just God's Spirit started coming out and people were repenting of their sins, believing in Christ. It was a great time, even historians label it the, the Great Awakening but not all the churches in America experienced a great awakening. In particular, there was a church in Enfield, Connecticut, which remained cold and lifeless through many of the years of the great awakening. And so in 1740, 1741, I have 1941 in my notes, that's wrong, 1741, the pastor of this church in Enfield contacted Jonathan Edwards and said, would you please come and preach to us? Our church is cold and lifeless. And perhaps God would use you as He used you at Northampton, Massachusetts to pour out on our church. And the, the leadership of the church spent a considerable time in prayer even the night before Edwards was preaching. Last quote, while the divine showers were falling around them, Enfield would be passed by. Here's a great awakening. They saw a revival all around and, and it hadn't come to Enfield. And they were pleading with God that it might come to Enfield. And so on July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon at the church in Enfield and the effect was extraordinary. Before the sermon was finished, people were moaning and crying and groaning. And they're crying out such things like, What shall I do to be saved? And there was such a commotion as one eyewitness said, that there was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence that he might be heard. I don't think we'll have that problem this morning. That might be a good problem to have. And maybe God in His grace would lead us to that. I know many of you know the title of this sermon. What's the title of the sermon? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The text Jonathan Edwards used was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Their foot shall slip in due time. Basically, Edwards described the nearness of judgment and the terrors of hell. Listen to some quotes from the sermon. Edwards said this, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapidly and mighty is its course when it is once let loose. It is true, Edward said, that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto and the floods of God's vengeance has been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. 
The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgates, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow is made ready on the string and justice bends the bow aiming at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. How many of you read Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God? If you haven't, I encourage you, just Google Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You can uh, see it. Now, the reason I, I introduced my message this morning with that is because our text sounds like sinners in the hand of an angry God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles there. In these verses, we will hear of terrifying expectation of judgment. We will hear of a fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. We will hear of merciless judgment. We will hear of the vengeance of the Lord. We'll hear of the terrors of falling into the hands of the Lord much like Jonathan Edwards spoke. And in fact, I'm going to use this message as an opportunity to highlight that sermon, planning on quoting from it several times because the theme is much the same as our text because Jonathan Edwards said it far better than I can say it. So I'll let his imagery spring up in our minds as appropriate. In fact, kids, I didn't put this on the notes, but if you want to try to count how many times I quote Jonathan Edwards, that'd be fine. Just start ticking them right at the top. And if you get it right, you get to go first in the treasure box, all right? Deal? Ethan, deal? Deal. All right. Well, in our exposition of Hebrews, here we've come. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following. The writer writes, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Let's pray. God, my prayer all week has been that I might feel the weight of these things. How easy is it to talk and not to, not, not to feel? How easy is it to put it in the abstract, in the theoretical? But I pray that You would put it, even in my mind as I preach this morning, in the real and concrete that I might feel the, the weight of the terrors of the fury of Your wrath. That I might be able to communicate how fearful it is 
to fall into the hands of an angry God. God, You're angry with those who refuse to repent and refuse the offer of the Gospel of the grace of God and rightly You should be. It's nothing but Your mere pleasure that holds back Your judgment now. And I pray that we all would feel that. And for those of us who are in Christ who have embraced Jesus, may this cause us to be even thankful even more to see the terrors we have escaped only by Your grace, simply by crying out to You and and pleading for mercy. And I pray, even as You did, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut, July 8th, God, that You would be present with us with Your Spirit and pour it out. God, may today be a day of salvation for those who need it. We love You and trust You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust you know the structure of the book of Hebrews. It's all about how Jesus is better. He's better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than Abraham, better than the high priests. He's offered up a better sacrifice, made a better covenant, entered a better tabernacle. That's how great Jesus is. He's better than anything. And, And interspersed, intermingled throughout these texts which speak of the glories and greatness of Christ are five warnings. And they all really flow from the text. If Jesus is so great, we ought to hold fast to our faith. If Jesus is so great, we ought to draw near to Him. If Jesus is so great, we ought to press on to pursue Him and not fall away or not harden our hearts. As we come to our text this morning, we come to the fourth warning of the book of Hebrews. And it's more intense than anything else we've seen at this point. You can argue it's the severest warning in all of Hebrews. It's rich with judgment. It's rich with terror. It sounds like Jonathan Edwards. My preaching today might sound a bit like him. If I have no humor in my message today, I apologize none for that. If I'm weightier today, if I'm heavier today, if I'm longer today, I feel no apologies for that because that is the depth of God's Word here. It is a heavy, deep passage of judgment. If I sound dead serious this morning, it's because I'm dead serious. I want these words to impact us. To lighten it with frivolity and humor would bring cacophony to the text today. Lest you think I'm just going to preach hell, you're mistaken. Because I'm going to be like Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God are read in literature classes across our land. And he's kind of mocked as just someone he wanted to scare people. He was just using his imagination to speak of hell, but really nothing could be further from the truth. The focus of his message was on the predicament of the sinner, as one man said, and how dreadfully God dangles us before He plunges to eternal agony. But, there is time to repent. And there is time to be saved. And today is a day of mercy. Today is a day of hope. And and Edward's message was decidedly evangelistic. He came to a dead church, a cold church in Enfield, Connecticut. And he preached this. And God poured down His Spirit. And many came to faith in Christ because of that. And what he did was he merely showed the closeness of people are to judgment. And then pointed to the mercy to which they could fly to escape that judgment. He didn't leave things hopeless. He gave hope. He was calling the people to escape the coming judgment. He was calling them to come to Christ and be saved. And so our hearts this morning ought to be stirred with a heart and a passion for other people 
to come and know Christ. I was encouraged, Darcy shared in the prayer meeting, she's planning on passing out um, information about a small group to meet in her home this fall. Maybe someone will be interested. We've had some tracks sent to some friends. I know Phil, you sent some. Karen, you sent some. Karen, over here. Well, this ought to stir us to evangelism. It ought to stir us to a heart for the, for the lost. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards ended his sermon. It's a plea for sinners to turn to Christ. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. And there may be some of you here this morning who need to hear this message. And may God grant you repentance this day. My message this morning is entitled, If We Go On Sinning Willfully. That is the main thought of the paragraph. Everything in verses 26 through 31 hinge on that. And that's where the paragraph begins. If we go on sinning willfully. It's those who continue on in willful sin who are in the danger of the judgments of God. It's upon them that the judgment will come. It's upon them that the judgment will come without mercy. It's upon them that judgment will come with terror and fear. Everything in this paragraph, everything that's said here, is predicated upon if you're sinning willfully. The question then comes, what does willful sin mean? What, what is it, sinning willfully? Well, one might easily think that he's referring to one's struggle with habitual sin. It's a sin that you can't shake. It's the sin of uh, addiction to a drug or to sugar or caffeine or nicotine. Or, or the, the constant anger that you have that just boils up at your, your, your children. Or the worry that you have of the future. Or the pornography that you're seeing on the internet. Or the bouts with depression that you have. Or your bouts with, with lack of prayer. Or, or a lack of love that you show. And, and these are things you're struggling with. And these are things you just can't seem to shake. And you think you're sinning willfully. Well, in one regard you are. But I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Now, he's not excusing any of these things. These things are evil. They are wrong. We must battle with them with all of our might. must plead for the Lord for deliverance from these things with prayer and fasting and tears and crying out to God for help, seeking help from others. But as long as we're in the flesh, we'll battle these sorts of things. Paul wrote in Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am practicing the very thing I would like to. I'm not practicing the things I would like to do. I'm doing the very things I hate. But if I do the very things that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. That's the Christian life. A lifelong battle with sin. And the goodness is this. In Christ, we have the power to overcome these things. We have a great high priest over the house of God who's ready, willing, and able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's willing to extend mercy and grace to us in time of need. Jesus won't break off the battering reed, nor will He quench the smoldering wick. I don't believe these things are what He's talking about here, sinning willfully. 
He's not talking about the one who hates his sin and is seeking help and seeking with all his might to escape the clutches of sin. That's not what he's talking about. And the reason I say this is because the whole context of the book of Hebrews, it wasn't primarily written to those struggling with besetting sin. It was written rather to those who had become interested in Jesus, had come into the church, had experienced the fellowship of God's people, and now were being pulled away back into their Judaism. And these were those who were turning away from Christ believing they didn't need Him anymore, weren't pursuing Him any longer. They'd seen Him in all His glory. They'd seen Him among the church. They'd seen the effects of His power. And then said, no, I don't need that anymore. And then gone off and sinned willfully. In verse 29, we see what they were doing. It's really a, a definition, if you will, of, of what those who are sinning willfully are doing. How much severe punishment do you think He will deserve who has, first of all, trampled underfoot the Son of God? Second, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And thirdly, has insulted the Spirit of grace. See, that's what they were doing fundamentally. These people go on sinning willfully. Is They're sinning willfully against Jesus. They knew full well who He claimed to be. They knew full well what He came to do, but they rejected it all. In fact, if you look at verse 26, they're sinning against knowledge. And that's the key here. They're not Joe Pagan out there who's never really heard of Jesus. They're people who've come in, heard of Jesus, seen Jesus, and then turned away from Him. Because it says there, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in our context today, I believe primarily it would be those people who come into the church and they see things and they're under the Word of God for some time. And they see the glories of Jesus. They, they, they taste Him. But then they drift away. Never enter church again. Not interested in Jesus. Believing other things. And there are many people like that. You know people like that. And I know people like that. These are the people who either say with their mouths they don't believe, or they act with their lives they don't believe. These are those who have abandoned any hope that they ever had in Christ. They say, I've heard you talk about Jesus. I know what He said, but I want no part of Him. I'll just find my hope elsewhere. These are just talking about. Sinning willfully are those who pursue their sin rather than pursuing Christ. Because there's a difference between one struggling with sin and hating it and the other one just pursuing his sin and loving it. He says, I know what Jesus said. He's going to forgive me. I don't believe Him. He said this is wrong. I'm okay with this. I don't think He's going to punish me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And there are many in the church of Jesus Christ who have justified many sins, pursuing headlong into their sin while justifying it. These are those who have forsaken Christ and sinning willfully. Those who are sinning willfully are those who have abandoned the church and end up forsaking the assembling together. I've been in your assembly. They're really nice people, but this Jesus stuff too much for me. I can't stand to be with you anymore. And they leave. Forsaken. And all these things, they reject Christ. And really what they do is they put their true colors on display. As 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not of us. And for such people, the consequences are awful. Look at the end of verse 26. 
If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Catch that. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Think about what that means. No longer remains a sacrifice for sins. They've denied the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus has denied them. There's no way for the sins to be forgiven. It's no longer a sacrifice for sins. This is equivalent to what was said in Hebrews 6. From the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, were filled with all this knowledge and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Right? They're mocking Jesus. Putting Him to open shame, Jesus says, no sacrifice for you. See, when you know so much about Jesus and turn your back on Him, it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. You've, You've gone too far. To turn away from Jesus and reject Him then, there's no way for sins to be forgiven then. In many ways, hear this, you're worse off now than you were. 2 Peter 2, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, coming to know things about Jesus, pulling into the church, escaping the defilements of the world, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. They're worse off because they sin against all knowledge. And such requires a greater punishment. And the punishment is simply this, no longer sacrifice for sins. Now, what a contrast it is to those who've come into the New Covenant. Look back at verse 17. This is quoted from Jeremiah 31. The promise of the New Covenant fulfilled in Jesus. Having put God's laws upon our hearts, writing them on our minds, He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the promise of everyone who trusts in Jesus is that God will remember our sins no more. They are wiped clean. They are gone. And in that case, the implication comes in verse 18, expositing the new covenant. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no more offering for sin for those of us who are in Christ. That's saying exactly the same thing as verse 26 is saying, only it's saying it in a different way. For those of the New Covenant, there's no longer any offering for sin because sin has been removed. It's been, been borne by the body on the cross. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. But the terrifying thing is that for those who turn their back on Jesus, there's no sacrifice for their sins either. They still have to deal with their sins and they may search high and low for a way to rid themselves of their sin. They may engage themselves in religion or they may go to some high mountain someplace. They may go to some imam. They may go to some holy man. They may go some other place. They may have some drugs. They try, But they're not going to find forgiveness of sins because for them there's no longer any offering for sin. No longer any sacrifice for sins. Instead, we see in verse 27 what awaits them. It's judgment. But here's what awaits them a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This is my first point. I've been long in getting to it, but here it is. If we go on sinning willfully, judgment will come. Judgment will come, or judgment will be certain. 
It's like the criminals caught red-handed by the Justice Department and he's in jail awaiting for the court date to come. Guilt has been proven beyond a shadow of the doubt. The guilty verdict is there. Judgment is certain. He's merely waiting for the day to come to actually feel the sentence that will come upon him. And that's the case for those who are sinning willfully. All they can expect is judgment. It's coming and it is certain. Verse 27, we see an Old Testament quote there. It speaks of uh, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It comes from Isaiah 26. In the passage in which the, the wicked and the righteous are contrasted. The, the righteous are seen as uh, those who have lived righteously, followed the ways of God, waited for the Lord, longed for the Lord, sought Him diligently, and the wicked have not learned righteousness. Even though they live among righteous people, they've not learned righteousness. Instead, they've dealt unjustly with those who trusted the Lord. They didn't perceive the majesty of God. And as a result, God's hand is against him. And fire will come and devour the wicked, according to verse 27. It will come. Isaiah 26 actually is one of those passages that comforts God's people by saying that there's going to be a day when He makes all the wrongs right. He tells the people He's seen evil and He's seen the injustice, but there's going to be a day when He solves it all. He says, don't fear. They'll pay for it. They will burn. And the author of Hebrews brings this matter certainly a text here. Those who go on sinning willfully can only expect judgment. All they can expect. And I do believe this is referring to the fiery flames of final judgment. The fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. When Jesus spoke of hell, He spoke of a hot, fiery place. When He told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was in this place of, of fiery torment so much that he longed for any relief from the heat. Even a dip of a finger touched to the tip of the tongue. In telling of the final judgments, Jesus said that the, the sheep will go one way into eternal life and the goats will go into the eternal fire. That is the fire that burns forever and ever is unquenchable. The book of Revelation finishes with the, the judgment of Satan, the beast, the false prophet, as Darren read for us this morning appropriately. And they all followed, everyone whose names are not written in the book of life, all followed the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire and brimstone where the the torment continues day and night forever and ever. And that's the picture here. Fiery torment forever and ever. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego failed to bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was so infuriated, he said, heat that furnace seven times hotter. Well, the heat of God's wrath will be far more greater still than this. And church family, I'm just saying, I don't want you to experience these things. don't want you to experience these things. They're really too awful to tell about. I'll listen. I'll quote again Jonathan Edwards. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a, a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep you off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. 
The fate of those who go on sinning willfully is that God then just lets go of that sender, that thin, that uh, slender thread, and drops you into hell because you rejected His grace. Judgment certain. It's going to happen. Right? You may not believe it. It's going to happen. Well, as we continue in our text, verse 28 and 29, we see that judgment will be merciless. Judgment will be merciless. If we go on sinning willfully, merciless judgment is what we can face. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, verse 28 says, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Okay, the lesser to the greater. The lesser is in verse 28. The greater is in verse 29. The lesser is the law of Moses. So let's just think about mercy in the law of Moses. Little mercy there. Testimony of two or three witnesses. Death came. Consider Numbers 15. There was a man who gathered wood on the Sabbath day. Maybe you remember this story. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what, they, what should be done to him. And then the Lord said to Moses, this man collecting wood on the Sabbath day, God's telling Moses audibly, He says this, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You want to go mow your lawn this afternoon? Under the law of Moses, you die. No mercy. Or listen to the law of Moses regarding rebellious children. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21 If any man is a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother and when they chastise him, chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown and they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death so you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Children, have you ever been rebellious towards your parents? Under the law of Moses, it's no mercy. Death comes. So I'm looking around, all the kids are like putting their heads down. I'm sorry, that was humor. Consider the story of Achan. He was in the army that walked around Jericho for seven days. The trumpets blew, the, the walls fell out, they marched in, they conquered the city. They were explicitly under the, the directions, don't take anything. Achan took something. A few chalices, some nice golden trinkets, he took them home. He and his family were stoned to death because they took the booty that was banned. He was shown no mercy the law of Moses. Similar commands are given to the law of Moses for the one who engages in idolatry or commits adultery or rape. No mercy, only judgment. Quick death. Okay, you think that's bad? I told you, verse 28 to 29, we're arguing from the lesser to the greater. See, it's one thing to turn away from lesser 
from Moses. It's another thing to turn away from the greater, Jesus. You remember in chapter 3 we talked about how Jesus is better than Moses? It means to turn away from Him is even worse. Verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think He will deserve? Who's basically spurned Jesus. If the law of Moses showed no mercy when a crime was committed, how much less mercy will you expect when you sin against the Son of God? When Jesus offers grace to you and you shun it and don't want it, you will get less mercy than did the man collecting wood on the Sabbath. How much severe punishment do you think you will deserve? Verse 29 is a question. It's a rhetorical question. Infinitely severe punishment. And we think of the New Testament as filled with grace, and it is. But, but the implications of an offer of grace is that refusal is an insult. When someone gives you a gift, if you refuse to take it, it's a huge in, insult. See, it's one thing even to sin against the law. It's another thing to sin against the living God. The sin is greater and the punishment will be worse because the greater the transgression, the greater will be the punishment. And I would just ask, which of you wants severe punishment than they received in the Old Testament? Look what takes place when you go on sinning willfully. Trample on their foot the Son of God, regard as unclean the blood of the covenant, and insult the Spirit of grace. Let's just spend a few moments unpacking those things. <clears throat> and then hopefully then you will see why the punishment is so much more severe for those who reject God's kindness in this day and age. Trampling underfoot is a sign of hatred and disdain. If you don't like something, you take it and you trample it. For instance, Jezebel, that wicked woman in Israel who was hated and despised by many. She was given over to her enemies who trampled her underfoot by horses. Intentionally, so as to disregard her body, so as to say she is so abhorred in our sight. She was so despised. Now imagine doing that with the Son of God, taking Jesus off the cross, throwing Him on the ground and trampling. Listen, that's what people do. That's what you do if you spurn the sacrifice of Christ. It's almost unthinkable to think of the magnitude of the insult. But that's what takes place. Can you see why the judgment is more severe? Second, you regard us unclean the blood of the covenant. He's talking about the blood of Jesus, which Peter calls the precious blood, which is more precious than gold or silver. And you regard it as common. This blood is the, is the thing that washes us. It is as pure as pure can be. Jesus will be forever worshipped as the Lamb who is slain. And we'll, we'll see Jesus, if we will, in heaven in some metaphorical way. The Lamb standing, it says in Revelation chapter 5, standing as if slain. We'll see His wounds and we will rejoice in His wounds and the blood He spilt for us for all eternity. When John was given the revelation, he was shown some believers who had washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The, the, the blood is what cleanses us and purifies us. It is, it is clean. It is, it is sanctified. It is holy as the blood of Jesus. And then to treat it as common is to treat it like bath water. Once you've bathed, you consider it dirty and you kind of just take it out and throw it onto the lawn so that you can clean up the vessel that you had your bath water in. Because you're more concerned about the 
vessel than you are the bath water. And that's what happens with people who regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. They're throwing the blood of Jesus out. I don't need the blood of Jesus. It's like someone died for you. And you just kind of go on. Whatever. It's a great insult. Third, you insult the Spirit of grace. That's what happens if you go on sinning willfully. Spirit of grace here is certainly, probably certainly, the Holy Spirit. It's the only time Spirit of grace is ever used, but it's probably the Holy Spirit. Heretofore, the, the writer of the Hebrews was quiet about the Holy Spirit, but now he comes speaking about the third member of the Trinity extending grace to sinners. And to reject grace is to insult God. It's to spit in His face. It's to call Him dirty names. It's to slur His reputation. It's to go nah, 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 nah at God. And you know what happens when people get insulted? On a human level, we know what happens. Start boiling up, red in the face, hot, angry. Mouth clenched, fists clenched, ready to fight and punch. Those who insult the Spirit of grace will face not a man's anger, but will face the anger of God. And it will be unmerciful. Because Moses was unmerciful. How much severer will this punishment be? This will be unmerciful forever. Again, Jonathan Edwards. Consider this, you that are present here that remain in an unregenerate state. That God will execute the fierceness of His anger implies that He will inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportioned to your strength and how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, He will have no compassion upon you. He will not forbear the executions of His wrath or in the least lighten His hand. And there should be no moderation or mercy, nor will God then at all stay His rough wind. He will give no regard to your welfare, nor be at all careful lest you suffer too much in any other sense then only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld. You don't want that. You don't want that. So believe in Christ. Trust in Him. As Edwards continues, evangelistic zeal, now God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy. But when once the mercy day of mercy has passed, your most lamentable and dolorous cries and shrieks will be in vain. You'll be wholly lost and thrown away of God as to any regard to your welfare. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. And there will be no other use of this vessel but to be filled full of wrath. God will be so far from pitying you when you cry to Him that it is said that He will only laugh and mock. Proverbs 1. It's too late to seek for wisdom. Let me just, as a footnote, comment here on this phrase I've skipped because it causes much discussion about what exactly this means. The second, they regard us unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. There are some who say that this means you lose your salvation. Um, Particularly, there are some that say, hey, look, He was sanctified by the blood. That looks like 
someone who is saved and now they've lost their salvation. And I say that's a legitimate reading of these words to be sure. But I don't think it does justice to the rest of Scripture, particularly even the writer of the book of Hebrews. Like we already looked at verse 18, right? Where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. What does that mean? There's only temporary forgiveness? No, the idea of verse 18 is that there's total, complete forgiveness. That's the basis for which we can love and embrace God entirely because our sins are washed away. It's not our sins might be washed away. They are washed away. So we can come to Him never worrying. They'll never come back to us again. And so the question then says, well, Steve, okay, if that's how you take this, what do you mean by the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified Well, I think the best way to understand this is that there's a sanctifying influence of being around the people of God, which these people certainly were. To be in church brings a certain level of sanctification. It's a bit like marriage. When one spouse is a believer and the other is an unbeliever, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 7.14, For the unbelieving husband... By the way, some of your wives here will be encouraged by this. Your unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. The believing wife sanctifies an unbelieving husband. Here you've got an unbeliever who's sanctified. How's that? Is he saved? No, he's unbelieving. He's not saved. But it's the sanctifying influence being near the people of God. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. And that's what's taking place here with the Jews. They'd come into the church. Maybe some they begin to shed some of their former sins, cleaned up their language a bit, conform their lives to the law of God. But that's not their condition now. They had some measure of sanctification, but now they're gone. They're away from that sanctifying influence of the church. They're far from Christ and their prospect is bleak. But, here's what I say. Bottom line, it doesn't really matter whether these people are losing a salvation or whether they're just losing the blessing of being within God's people. We, we ought not to wrangle about words in this text right now. We ought to come to realize that the predicament is awful. It's terrible. They'll face a merciless judgment because they have mocked God as they have forsaken Christ. And so church family, let, let's do the opposite of everything that they have done. It says here in verse 26, that those trample underfoot the Son of God. Let's not trample underfoot the Son of God. Let us lift high the Son of God. They regard us unclean the blood of the covenant. May we cherish the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross and never let it go. They insulted the Spirit of grace and may we honor the Spirit of grace in our lives by giving all praise to Him. Isn't that a better way to live? Let's live that way. Well, a third and final point this morning. Judgment will be certain. Judgment will be merciless. Judgment will be fearful. If I've scared you this morning, that's a good thing because judgment is to be fearful. Verse 31, We know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. Here it comes. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I've been thinking about this all week and I, I, don't, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to fall into the hands of God when His judgment is against me. He just says here it's terrifying. I say it's super terrifying. It's the, it's the scariest thing in the world. 
when a policeman comes, you, know, you start beating your heart a little bit. When someone in authority comes, you start getting scared a little bit. But when God, the supreme authority of all, comes, you'll be scared witless. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I don't think we can stand in His judgment. People come into the presence of God, they wilt. Men of God, Isaiah comes to the presence of God, and he's undone. How much more will someone who is a sinner and who has despised Christ their whole life try to stand before God? There's no way. It's fearful. This, verse 30, has two Old Testament quotes. It's quotes from, and then draws a natural conclusion. The first quote comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which is the same text that Jonathan Edwards used in his sermon. Only it's just a different part of it. Listen to the whole verse. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. Now, Jonathan Edwards just, in due time, their foot will slip. The writer here of the Hebrews quotes a little bit before that. That's why Jonathan Edwards' sermon is so linked here, is what we're feeling. The meaning of that verse is this, that God's in total control of the judgments, all in His hands. And in Edward's sermons, he, he, he makes over and over and over again the point that it's only the pleasure of God that has withheld the judgment for this time. Again, I quote him. There's no want in the power of God to cast the wicked men into hell at any moment. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth, and so it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus, it is easy for God, when He pleases, to cast His enemies down to hell. Furthermore, they deserve to be cast into hell. So divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using His power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice crawls aloud for infinite punishment of their sins. Furthermore, they are already under a, a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between Him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them, so they're bound all over already to hell. John 3.18 He that believeth not is condemned already. Edwards continues, the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said, when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. There is nothing that keeps the wicked man at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By mere pleasure of God... I mean His sovereign pleasure, His arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty. There was Edwards. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Their foot will slip in due time. I've got them. In my time, you don't worry about it. My time, I got them. There'll be a day their foot will slip. He's got other purposes now. Why he's holding us back. Everything's at the disposal of God's hand. We have no control over the judgment of God. He'll bring it about what He wants in His own way. Now the next quotation here comes. And again, the Lord will judge His people from Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. Just the next verse. It continues in the same thing. God is in total control of the judgment that comes. God will judge His people. He's talking about Israel. 
by application in the story about His church. God will deal appropriately with His people. God will deal appropriately with those who call upon His name. Now, it's interesting here, in the context of Deuteronomy, it comes as comfort. Because in the parallelism of the Hebrew text, the next phrase of the passage says this, the Lord will have compassion on His servants. So it's judgment not in the sense of punishment, it's judgment in the sense of vindication going on there. Those who serve the Lord will find compassion on the day of judgment. Those who serve the Lord will find mercy on the day of judgment. But for those who go on sinning willfully and turn their backs, nothing but terror awaits them. It's just, God is totally in control. He's going to judge. Those who hate Him, those who love Him, He'll vindicate. And that's why we read in verse 31, is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, I can do no better than Jonathan Edwards and read some more. Talking about the terror, okay? How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite mercy. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it whether you be young or old. And he's applying himself to this congregation. There is reason to think, he says, that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. And that may be true of us. We know not who they are, or what seats they sit in, or what thoughts they have now. It may be that they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there, if, that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. She anticipate what will take place. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over Him? But alas, instead of one, how many it is likely will remember this discourse in hell. There are many of read Sinners and the Angry God who remember the discourse, didn't believe a lick of it, and now believe it. There may have been some then who heard it audibly as He preached it, and from best we know, he just held his notes right here and read. A lot less eye contact than I give you. He was not an eloquent speaker. Not that I'm elegant. But not at all. He was introvert supreme. But think of the reality of how many people have heard this sermon and have found themselves in hell. What, what, what a great evangelistic thing that God has orchestrated by using this sermon and then propagate it in American culture to have so many people read it and being warned. And that judgment day, God will say, well, you read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, right? Did you believe it? No. Well, that's true. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God. Now, it's far beyond time of closing my message this morning. I've been, I've been long. I know that. But I want to end with hope because that's where the writer of Hebrews ends with. In fact, he begins and ends with hope. He, chapter, verses 19 through 25, where we were last couple weeks. There's great hope there. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have a great priest over the house of God. So, so since we have all these great privileges, 
Let us draw near to Him and let us hold fast to Him and let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Because our opportunities are great. So let, let's do it. Let's seize the opportunity. And then, let us not go on sinning willfully because fearful judgment will come if we do. But the encouragement comes here in verse 32. And may the encouragement come to you as well. Remember the former days, he says in verse 32, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated. In other words, remember the former days when you first heard of Christ. You suffered greatly for His cause. You and out, you, you were a public reproach. People called you a sect and a heresy and wrong and, and people like Saul would come and, and try to kill you. And you endured those sufferings. And you shared with others. And, and you went to the prisoners, verse 34. You showed sympathy with the prisoners. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Right? He's just in trying to encourage them that this is not your lot of the judgment that will fall. He says, you've shown your love to Christ and, and willingly given yourself for that. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence as a great reward. There's hope that there is a reward in the future. There is hope that that the writer of the Hebrews was confident in the standing of where the people were. He was confident that they hadn't forsaken the Lord. But the warning is there for a reason. There were some who were sinning willfully and were soon to face the terrors of, of judgment. And I just say, the terrors of judgment and hell don't have to come upon any of us here this morning. God's provided the way of escape, the hope through Christ. One last quote, Jonathan Edwards. And here's where he gives hope. It is doubtless the case that some of you who have seen and known that never deserved hell more than you and heretofore appeared as likely to have been now alive as you, and their case, being dead, is all past hope. And you deserve hell much more than they did. And they're dead, they're past hope. They're crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But you sit here in the land of the living. That's where we are. In the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day opportunity to enjoy what you have now? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown a door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. And you can just read, by, by the way, Jonathan Edwards' account, um, a narrative of surprising conversions where he just, he just writes down testimonies of uh, the people who were converted in his ministry that he saw. People cold and lifeless in the Christianity for years, and then when the Spirit of God came, they, they became alive and understood the glories of the cross. You just Google that, read that. It's a great thing. And he's talking about the many flocking to him. And he was shocked at how many people just start coming and believing in Christ. In the church, it was revival was happening in the church. It wasn't unsaved. It wasn't outside people. It was people in the church who were being saved in great numbers. And he said, a day in which the great awakening, many are flocking to him, pressing into the kingdom. That, that's when the mercy is wide open. He said, many are daily coming from east and west, north and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you were in. 
are now in a happy state where their hearts filled with love to Him who has loved them and washed them from their sins with His own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And then he warns, how awful is it to be left behind at such a day? To see so many others feasting while you're pining and perishing. To see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Let me pray right here. God, the, the judgment of of God is terrible beyond comprehension. It's in Revelation eight verse one. <coughs> when the Lamb broke the seventh seal. Finally, God's wrath being outpoured, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And we don't know why the, the silence was, oh God. But we know that it was the beginning of your wrath. And we know that with the trumpets came extreme damage and destruction. May we be quiet before you. <coughs> I pray by your grace, God, you would use this message in our lives. For those who are apart from Christ, I pray that you would do today as you did in Enfield. <coughs> Show the need for Jesus. And for those of us who know the glories that we will miss all these things, that God will vindicate us in the end, pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us such a joy in our salvation. Against the black backdrop of our sin, may we see the, the glorious hope we have of sins forgiven, made white and holy in the blood of Jesus, who you made to be sin so that we might become his righteousness. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that, to have a fervor to share that with others, be in our family, our friends, our neighborhood. All, O oh Lord, for the glory of Jesus. And, and I pray, even as we sing one last song, Jesus, thank you. I pray that we would sing that from the bottom of our hearts, that we once were your enemy, and now we're seated around your table, because the Father's wrath has been completely satisfied in the blood of Christ. I pray that just this Sunday morning of having contemplated hell and its realities and how judgment will come and how it will be merciless and how it will be terrifying, that then to realize that we've escaped all of that. Give us a great joy at Rock Valley Bible Church with each other and with the world, that the, the world would see our countenance and our joy and say, what, what is up with you? And might tell them of, of the forgiveness we found in Christ, that there's no longer any offering for sin because Jesus has taken our sins away, removed it as far as the east is from the west. And we no longer have to face these terrors. So help us, O Lord, as we even transition back to just singing in life and church and people. Keep this message on our minds. Haunt us with this as is necessary. Accomplish your will, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.